This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. If you talk to many African-American physicians today, what they will tell you is that they had many people that discouraged them from going into medicine. Uh, you know, that they were smart, but they said, no, 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 you, you, you can't be a doctor. Um, your grades aren't good enough or you're not diligent enough. Whatever the rationale was, the people that got through medical school were, the, were many of the African-American students, Latinx students that were persistent and didn't listen to areas of discouragement. So we have to encourage young people that we see have a bright spark in their eye and some talent to go into the STEM education. And then of course, some of them will go into medicine. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast, presented by Gastrologics, the only group purchasing organization in the United States working strictly on behalf of independent gastroenterologists. I'm your host, Fred Rosenberg, and today we have a very special guest. I'm excited to have a conversation with Dr. Georges Benjamin, the executive director of the American Public Health Association and one of the nation's most influential physician leaders. The American Public Health Association was founded nearly 150 years ago at a time when dramatic scientific advances were identifying the causes of communicable diseases. Today, the mission of APHA is to improve the health of our nation through science-based programs and advocacy. The COVID-19 pandemic has refocused our attention and recognition that much remains to be done when it comes to improving our nation's health. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Benjamin to our podcast. His accomplishments are many and too long to fully list, and his journey includes med school at the University of Illinois, where I did my residency in GI fellowship. At the time that I was there, 25% of the GI fellows were people of color or women. While this might be normal today, it wasn't so 40 years ago. I know my education benefited from the diversity of the fellows and faculty. I'm interested to hear about your experience at the University of Illinois. Fred, good to, good to meet you and, uh, and hear from you. I had a great experience at University of Illinois. As you know, the University of Illinois works very hard to have a very diverse uh, student body. And when I was there, we did indeed uh, had over 100 um, African-American and Latinx students in the, in the school. And we quite famously worked together. Uh, as you know, there's also five medical schools in the Chicagoland area. And so there was a very, very much a diverse group of students going through medical school uh, at that time. A lot of that was part of the effort, the national effort to grow the minority um, health workforce. Having said that, you know, um, Certainly, there are many places where you went where you're the only person in the room that looked like you um, and the only person that brought those life experiences to the table. But I got to tell you, I personally felt supported uh, because I thought the environment that I was in wanted me to be there. Now, I know I had classmates at other medical schools in the area who had a very different experience. And I think for me, the issue for us was around numbers. The fact there were so many of us Uh, we could find somebody with a similar life experience just to commiserate with when you didn't have a, when you were having a bad day. How did your work in emergency medicine shape your advocacy for public health? 
So I had the honor at the University of Illinois to go to Urbana downstate for my first year. And that, that was a special program. We saw patients our first year. Um, they, they, we learned medicine through a disease um, uh, process. You know, so, for example, we learned about uh, wound healing and learned all of the various parts of um, the community blood count and, and the hematology system and immunology, all as part of looking at it through a disease model. And then we got to go out and actually go and hang out in physicians' offices. What One of the things I did was hang out in, in hospital emergency departments. I learned that I was a visual learner. So I went to hospital emergency departments and really fell in love very early on with emergency medicine. I learned a lot about the idea of undifferentiated patient care. I learned a lot about the fact that there were many people that didn't have access to health care. And I learned a lot about um, emergency medicine um, kind of as the front door of the hospital from people with unappointed care. So that taught me about the holes in our system. And I often tell people, if you really want to know about how well your hospital works or about the health and well-being of your community, sit in the waiting room of your emergency department and watch what comes in. What is your main focus at the American Public Health Association right now? Quite frankly, the American Public Health Association is all COVID all the time. Um, we're doing a lot of efforts to try to deal with vaccine hesitancy, helping um, our members scale up their response to COVID. Uh, and then, of course, the, the tragedy that we saw in our nation's capital also brings to stark relief uh, the other part of the American Public Health Association's work, which is dealing with um, health inequities uh, and racism uh, and structural racism, particularly in the health um, care systems. You've been an outspoken champion for increased diversity in medicine and in leadership positions within healthcare organizations. Tell our listeners how diversity can help improve patient care. Well, you know, diversity brings um, a group of different life experiences to the table. And you, you get out of this concept of groupthink. Um, you know, you it expands your knowledge. It expands your understanding of of what patients experience. Uh, so when you're, you're in a room where everybody has exactly the same life experience, uh, it, in many ways, it can limit thought. So I remember uh, in many ways, um, when I was practicing public health, I was the health commissioner in Washington, D.C. And I remember um, sitting there um, and talking to uh, a bunch of kids who are going to go to London to um, have a reciprocal visit. The, the Queen of England had come to Washington, D.C., visited the city, and then you had a, a bunch of kids who were from under, underprivileged communities that were now going to go to visit um, England. And I was talking about how wonderful a trip they were going to have. They were going to see the Queen. They were going to see the Buckingham Palace, the changing of the guards, the double-decker red buses, all the things that I wanted to see. Um, and what was interesting about that was that the, the city council member I was talking to as we were, we, were, we were listening to what these kids were going to do looked at me in a very strange manner. And he reported to me, because I, I didn't understand what I was missing, and, he, and he, he let me know that what I was missing was that these kids really were not excited about going to Britain because they didn't quite understand what they meant. 
what they were excited about was going to, to Reagan National Airport. Now, understand that Washington, D.C. is a city of 10 square miles, but these kids had never, ever seen the airport. They could not even contemplate where the airplanes came from. From their neighborhood, these planes came over the horizon from some mystical place and then took off in the sky. So it taught me, a middle-class African-American kid um, with the suit on, that I had no understanding of the life and um, experiences of those kids. So it's not just about race. It's also about class. And I've tried to work very hard to try to narrow and narrow the, the things that I don't know and expand my understanding uh, of other people's life experiences. And I think a diverse work environment helps you do that. Many of us in independent GI practices want to increase diversity within our practices, but there's a pipeline problem. The Association of American Medical Colleges estimates that there are a little more than 7,000 African-Americans 6,000 Latinos, and fewer than 200 Native American students currently in medical school. Only a small fraction of these will become gastroenterologists. What can GI practices collectively do nationally, and what can we do in our individual communities to ensure that in 10 or 20 years from now, we're no longer talking about this as a pipeline problem? Well, we clearly have to fill the pipeline. And, and, and the way you do that is by reaching out at very early um, young ages and try to enhance the number of um, young men and women who want to go into STEM education, you know, science, technology, uh, engineering, and medicine uh, education. It's important to do that. Um, if you can um, expand um, STEM education, and I, I, it's not medicine, it's actually math. Uh, if you can extend that education, then you can, you can really fill the pipeline. And we want them to go into all the sciences. And then some of them will go into medicine. And, but if you can fill that pipeline up by finding really smart um, young men and women who have not yet had the opportunity to enhance their skills, uh, then you can, um, you can fill the pipeline. One of the other things we have to do is recognize that if you talk to many African-American physicians today, what they will tell you is that they had many people that discouraged them from going into medicine, uh, you know, that they were smart, but they said, no, 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 you, you, you can't be a doctor. Um, your grades aren't good enough or you're not diligent enough. Whatever the rationale was, the people that got through medical school were, the, were many of the African-American students, Latinx students that were persistent and didn't listen to areas of discouragement. So we have to encourage young people that we see have a bright spark in their eye and some talent to go into the STEM education. And then, of course, some of them will go into medicine. Do you think there needs to be a, a, a national federal commitment to do this? I think at all levels. I think it's a federal, state, local initiative that's needed. Um, and, you know, we've been trying to do this for many years. That does mean that you not only have to uh, enhance the pipeline, but one of the reasons we have such a poor pipeline is that we really haven't invested in K-12 education like we need to, particularly in low-income communities. We still have too many low-income communities where the facilities that kids are going to are falling apart, where they don't have access to quality textbooks, where 
they have lots of students that are on free or low reduced lunch menus because they're food insecure. So we really as a nation really need to have a new effort to build a social society that supports everyone to get through um, the early part of their childhood education um, and their life. If we're going to actually build the systems we need to um, build up the pipeline like, like it needs to be. Many people live in communities today where the healthy choice is not the easy choice. A lack of access is one important reason for the disparities that exist in healthcare outcomes. For example, the rates of screening for colorectal cancer are much lower in communities of color. What programs have you seen being developed at local levels that practicing gastroenterologists might introduce or support? Well, you know, we've had several um, federal programs that have tried to enhance um, cancer screenings. But I remember one when I was the health officer in Maryland that we um, put in place. It was We used some of our tobacco dollars that we got from the tobacco settlement to enhance the amount of colorectal screening in our community. And I remember there was a lady um, who came in to um, testify and to the legislature. And she came in because she had been brought in, as I remember it, by her husband because she was having rectal bleeding into the emergency department. And she had gone into two or three emergency departments and they did an exam, probably did a rectal exam. And in every case, they told her that she uh, probably had hemorrhoidal bleeding. Well, it turns out, of course, as you can imagine the story, she did not. But there were, we had a program in which the state funded for a colon rectal screening. She was able to get that screening at no cost to her. And, you know, of course, we found that she had a, um, a colon cancer. The good news, it was early. She had surgery and, of course, was cured. And she came and, of course, praised this, this program. Uh, I might add, this person was not African-American. This was a, a, a woman um, who was white in a blue-collar family, and she didn't have health insurance coverage. And so this program was for people who didn't have health insurance coverage. And the point for gastroenterologists is that our partnership with the gastroenterology community in Maryland was that we did the screenings, and if we found anybody, then they would, as part of their community obligation to help people, take care of this woman for free. And then we worked with the hospitals in Maryland to, to offset her costs. So we were able to partner very effectively with the community of gastroenterologists to take care of anybody who they found who had colon rectal cancer who didn't have health insurance. You know, um, in Chicago, the the uh, Walgreens for several years ran a program doing uh, hemocult tests on anybody, and they would analyze them, and then we would see the positive. Under kind of the same program, if you had no insurance, we would take care of it and work on an arrangement with the hospital to do procedures. Well, you know, that's that's the way to do it. Um, th these kind of partnerships um, work. Now, obviously, I'm an advocate for getting uh, everyone um, in a system with universal health care. We're not necessarily debating single-payer health care per se, but we can have a system with everyone in and no one out. And by the way, the Affordable Care Act can be constructed and enhanced to get us that system. Well, you know, I think most, most gastroenterologists would agree with you. I'm sure we'll see a lot of changes with the new administration and Congress. 
I'm hoping that the increased use of telehealth we've seen over the past year continues. While it can be frustrating that we can't examine our patients, the electronic house call has changed the doctor-patient relationship in a good way. What kind of data are you seeing on telehealth? You know, there's, there's some, some, some early data that certainly shows that um, patient satisfaction is improved with telehealth. Uh, all of us had to learn how to do it. So obviously, gastroenterology is a very procedure-intense specialty. But a lot of the upfront visit and the follow-up visit does not have to happen face-to-face. And in fact, um, patient satisfaction can go up because if I don't have to get out of my house and get in my car to go in just to have my blood pressure checked and um, have a conversation with my doctor face-to-face, uh, then I can save time and I'm, I'm probably going to be much more satisfied because I don't have to go. So, and I think the throughput can be improved. In other words, um, by having stacking up teleradiology follow-up visits to the extent that you don't have to actually see the patient um, physically, you can see more patients. And then, of course, you have more time to do procedures, which I know you guys love. You know, I think we've all been kind of uh, um, timid and reluctant to begin t- uh, telehealth. But as now a year into this, uh, many of us are very comfortable doing follow-ups over the phone. And, and as you said, the patient feedback is um, they love it. Uh, if we're running late, they'd much rather wait for us in their living room than our waiting room. And so as a result, um, you know, they're less anxious. We're less pressed to push through the day. Um, yeah, so I think this may be something that will uh, persist after we've cured uh, COVID. I, I hope so. And as you know, the, the, the rate limiting barrier to us really for this taking off was reimbursement, They're trying to figure out how to appropriately reimburse for these visits and this extraordinary fear that somehow this would dramatically increase healthcare costs. Well, there's certainly a risk of that, but if we could properly construct the patient visit in a way, um, either through um, bundling payments uh, or structuring the payment, even if we still do it fee-for-service in such a way to make it work. We just have to figure it out the right way. And and there are lots of models out there now that have figured out how to do it, particularly paying for value, bundling payments, those kinds of things uh, make, a, make a big difference. As we move into 2021, we face a lot of challenges. Tell me what you see ahead for medicine in the coming year. Well, you know, I, I, tragically, we're still going to be dealing with COVID um, through most of this year. Uh, and uh, there has not been a year in which we've not had a public health emergency. We still have the obesity epidemic to deal with. We still have the opioid epidemic to deal with. So those two epidemics are still out there. The, there's an epidemic that's rising of sexually transmitted diseases and severe weather. You know, climate change is real. It's in, impacting our health today. And that's something we're going, to, we're going to continue to have problems with. Last year, we had 28 named storms. Three big ones hit the Gulf. There are lots of health implications for that. But I think the biggest challenge we're going to have this year is the health debt that we have stored up. All of the patients that did not get to go to their doctors, all the patients that did not get to have their breast and cervical cancer screening, their colon rectal screening, all the children that didn't get their adequate immunizations. Frankly, I'm not so much worried about a COVID outbreak next fall. I'm more worried about a measles outbreak next fall because uh, we have not effectively dealt with the other vaccine preventable diseases that we know that are out there. So I think those are the challenges. I think on the on the good side is that we do see a light at the end of the table to COVID. 
um, with the addition of vaccines as a preventive tool. I also know that we um, see that in many of our communities that there's um, a lot of uh, people working together. Uh, we do have a lot of division, as you know, but we do have all kinds of amazing stories of people taking care of their neighbors, helping one another, looking out for their friends, checking on their family members. And so I think I'm hopeful for the future. Well, um, thank you, Dr. Benjamin. It was great speaking with you today. And thanks for joining us today. Fred, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.